0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us.
1: This edition of Behind the Curtain features musicologist and author Dr. Mitchell Morris discussing the romantic disease, that is, the way composer Giuseppe Verdi and his audiences would have thought about tuberculosis and how it manifests in La Traviata. Dr. Morris has been a professor of musicology at UCLA since 1997. Among his many specialties are music, gender, and sexuality, opera studies, music at the last van de siècle, Russian and Soviet music, American popular song, ecumusicology, film and TV music. He is a co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of the American Musical. A frequent collaborator with Los Angeles Opera, he is also an active working librettist with premieres in the U.S. and Mexico. Please note that the following conversation does include mature content that may not be suitable for young listeners. Thanks very much
0: and good morning. The title that I have to work with today is The Romantic Disease. So I usually spend a lot of time talking about formal details of music and I will get to some of them, but I'm gonna start by talking about biology. Um, Mycobacterium tuberculosis has been associated with human beings for an extremely long time. We do have physical evidence of people who have tuberculosis from about 4,000 BC. It's reasonable to suppose that it infected the human species before the Neolithic, in fact, and infected humans separately because it actually also finally made it into the Native American population, eventually in a separate transmission, probably around 180 AD or so. Uh, it's been around for a long time, and of course, until the last approximately 150 years, no one knew what to do about it. And that is really the crucial issue at first that I want to talk about. Uh, tuberculosis, or as of course we want to call it for the 19th century, consumption, is a disease that takes a long time to become recognized as a disease. At first, the oldest term for it is the unbelievably wonderful but hard to pronounce Greek word phthisis or ptisis probably originally, P-H-T-H-I-S-I-S, um, which was basically a generic Greek term for wasting diseases of any kind. So it was really always marked by the steady emaciation of the sufferer all the time. It became tuberculosis or consumption properly uh, in the early 1820s. There had been a huge rise in tuberculosis cases in Europe from about the middle of the 18th century on. Uh, It is likely to attribute this to poorer ventilation and much more closed quarters and increasing urbanization because of course tuberculosis is transmitted by air. If you are a sufferer with active tuberculosis, which I'll get back to in a minute. Every time you cough or spit or open your mouth even to speak, little particles are transmitted to all of your near kin, essentially. Uh, In fact, it is a very widely spread bacterium. Um, Some estimates are that 25% of the human race has it because you can have it and not actually manifest visible signs of the disease. If you have latent tuberculosis, as it is called, which 90% of cases are, you won't know you have it because it will never actually reach the infectious point. It will just simply live in an alveolar sac for a while and sort of have its life and not actually kill you. And tuberculosis in general has usually been a fairly slow progressing disease. Um, When you get a really dramatic effect, it's because the infection has broken through a blood vessel and caused a major hemorrhage otherwise it's really slow and opportunistic and it bears basically it wears you down slowly much like another much mythologized disease of recent years Um, it's not an accident that both cancer and AIDS get compared to tuberculosis and it's not just because of Susan Sontag it was mythologized because no one knew how to treat it or what to do about it and so it became wrapped in a whole set of ideas about transmission and its significance and all these kinds of things around 1820s it's in the 1820s that in france it was first reconceived primarily as a disease of the lungs that's how it was reformulated at that point and it's at that point that the constellation of symptoms finally becomes more clearly a single thing that can be talked about Now, that was done by two processes. The uh, physicians who were working on this took patient histories and then compared them with anatomical issues. They were able to do dissections and sort of look at the condition of sufferers and then put these pieces together into a unified whole. Um, But of course, it's in the 1820s. No one knows how diseases are transmitted. No one has a good theory of that. And certainly no one has any good ideas of how to combat it. So what happened, as had happened with with cancer in the middle 20th century and with AIDS in the 1980s, is that a giant mythology grew around it that had as much to do with ideas about the character of the sufferers as it did about the disease itself. Now, one of the ways we know this is from an extremely important little book from the 1970s by Susan Sontag called Illness as Metaphor in which she undertook a really careful comparison of the mythology of tuberculosis in the 19th century and the mythology of cancer in the 60s and 70s. She did this, as a matter of fact, because she had gotten a cancer diagnosis and her typical way of working through life problems was to intellectualize and write about them. In the 80s, she wrote a not entirely satisfactory but interesting book called AIDS and its Metaphors to focus on the cultural significance of the diseases themselves. And in fact, a large number Of mass diseases have this mythology. If I can digress for just a second, one of the reasons that the complete fabrication and idiotic myth of Tchaikovsky's suicide took place is because some peculiarities about how his body was treated and how he was talked about came from a mythology about cholera at the time that we lost. People were shocked when he caught cholera because they believed cholera was a lower class and dirty disease. And Tchaikovsky was a nobleman, you know, and he bathed. He couldn't possibly have caught this, but that kind of peculiarity led to this entire paranoid Dostoevsky and sort of construction of secret suicides and crazy stuff like that, because Russians are all crazy, right? It says so in Dostoevsky; it must be true. Um, That kind of mythology hovered around cholera into the 20th century. With tuberculosis, there were a number of symptoms that rapidly became metaphorized in two important directions. Let's consider some of the problems. If you have tuberculosis, active tuberculosis, you probably run a low-grade fever almost all the time. You're probably seriously anemic, not only because you cough up blood, but also because you cough so much you probably can't eat very often. That's also one of the reasons you waste away. It's not just the toll the disease is taking on your immune system and the permanent state of diarrhea. It's also that you simply can't absorb any nutrients because you can't stop coughing long enough to eat. A lot of people who are seriously ill with tuberculosis essentially has survived on opium and booze because they needed painkillers all the time. So what this all means is that if you are a tubercular woman, let's say, because that's always the sort of classic image, you are pale, extremely pale as only a Northwest European can be pale. Milky skin, translucent, pale. You look like a vampire, but you're flushed. You probably have rosy cheeks. You probably look very high colored, in fact. You look, in effect, like you have serious, beautiful makeup on all the time. And the, the, the taste and makeup, I remember great aunts for whom to be pale with rosy cheeks was the ideal appearance. That is going to be part of this. You're going to look delicate and attenuated because you're starving to death. And so your body is going to seem elongated. Um, the pressure on the lungs is possibly going to make your neck seem extended. And so you're going to have this particular delicate wraith like look. I think in your packet, you've got that picture of the uh, Millet painting of the death of Ophelia. Uh, the, the model, of course, was tubercular, and that kind of frail, white, pale beauty was at a premium all the way into the 20th century. Like the paintings of the 1890s and the early 1900s are filled with women like that still, in fact. It was also, of course, connected with the idea of dying young and pretty. And that the sort of association with youthfulness, ah, she went before her time. She was too good for this world. She was too poetic. That was an important part as well. It was also believed, because if you think about transmission, this makes sense. It was suspected that there was a hereditary element to this. It wasn't thought of in the terms of proximity. It was thought of in terms of, you know, inheritance, uh, pregenetic. So something in the blood. Um, Antonia in the Tales of Hoffman is in part tubercular because her mother was. And it's part of this sort of genetic stamp that is carried through, which is at once a curse and also a blessing because it gives her refinement. It gives her poetic, delicate sensibilities. It makes her better than the rest of the world. Uh, Tuberculosis also tended to lean towards making people's hair thin out and become much finer and silkier. So you've got all sorts of things which are gonna quickly be marked as erotically appealing and spiritual at the same time that are just being registered on the bodies of the persons who have it. Then you consider the list of important early 19th century art well, 19th century artists in general who had tuberculosis because it was the leading cause of death in Europe for a big chunk of the 19th century. So we can think of Keats, we can think of Shelley, I think all the Brontes. Schiller had it, Weber had it, Chopin had it, Watteau had it in the 18th century, Dostoevsky had it, Poe had it, Aubrey Beardsley had it. It The list goes on and on and on. And with some of these figures, let's take a male example, Chopin. It's interesting because you remember I said it was primarily a girly disease. But think about how Chopin is represented as almost androgynous, as this sort of figure who has this sort of liminal space in terms of gender because he's such a hyper poet. Um, I think there's an old film with... I don't remember who was starring in it. Um, playing Chopin where the mark of it is in the film is gonna, it's a black and white from about the 40s, I think. Spitting blood on the keys, that kind of dramatic thing. But that's also an important aesthetic component. Because there you are, let's imagine you're the average Marguerite Gautier and you're suffering from tuberculosis. You're pale, and you're probably carrying a white hanky, right? And then <coughs> what color is that going to be? So the extreme contrasts of red and white are one of the markers of tuberculosis visually as well. Now, um, it was also believed, as people were trying to think about causality, that possibly one cause of, of tuberculosis was the lack of restraint in amorous matters. I think, frankly, that this is where it starts to rub really close to syphilis in important ways. And it's a question sometimes as to whether your average consumptive courtesan, which one of the diseases is actually the most concern at this point. Because there are all sorts of things that every person in the audience would have known about syphilis that we wouldn't realize now because of penicillin. Uh, For instance, just to digress, Kundry is obviously syphilitic in Parsifal. What's wrong with Amfortas is he's got it. He's got the wound that will not heal, that's worse at night. All the symptomology of syphilis is in his body, in the opera, and Wagner would have expected everybody to recognize that. We don't anymore because our medical history blocks that, and tuberculosis is similar. There was no adequate treatment for tuberculosis until 1943. That is when the first antibiotic that would have an effect was introduced and it started to be used in 46. Before that, your only real chance of managing it tended to be time at a sanatorium. If anybody's ever read Thomas Mann's novel, The Magic Mountain, the whole thing takes place in a sanatorium. It's up really high in the Alps where the air is thin, cold, clean, and dry. And the job of a consumptive in the sanatorium is to lie around all the time and eat a lot because that's the only treatment that was really staved it off at that point. So you have this intractable disease, and you don't know what's causing it, but because I think in part of the physical characteristics and its proximity to other diseases, sexuality rears its head. Um, Here's a medical text from 1853 that I'm gonna quote. Of all vices, however, none is so apt to lead on to consumption as the unnatural or unrestrained indulgence of the sensual passions. This is why we can suddenly discover not only artists who are tubercular, but also protagonists of various sorts who can be clearly identified as tubercular, whether or not it's ever named. Oh, what can ail thee, knight-at-arms, alone and palely loitering? The sedge has withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Oh, what can ail thee, knight-at-arms, so haggard and so woe-begone? The squirrel's granary is full and the harvest's done. I see a lily on thy brow, with anguish moist and fever dew, and as thy che- and on thy cheeks a fading rose, fast withereth too. This, of course, is the first three stanzas of Keats's La Belle Dame sans Merci, and you can argue that. La Belle Dame herself is tuberculosis sort of incarnate. Um, If not, she is clearly a transmitter of this. And her figure as this femme fatale, one of the earliest femme fatales I can think of, sort of establishes this permanent link between disease and that sort of fatal attraction of this kind of female archetype. This is going to go on very far into the 20th century. When you think about Lulu at the end of Berg's opera, she's got syphilis and she's transmitting it in her final career as a streetwalker by necessity. It's that kind of thing that's already being firmly established in the early 19th century. I have things to say about this, actually. Um, But I want to start with World War I, because that's when you see the sort of counterbalance of Plump. Anybody ever seen the original version of Dablauer Engel with Marlene Dietrich? If you look at the cabaret, those women are hefty. Every woman who's like a sex object is a Venus of Willendorf type. They can live through a famine. And that's clearly, (laughs) then that is clearly part of the erotic ideal at that point. What changes is the 1920s and the rise of incipient celebrity culture. That is a place where there's still a premium on skinny. Remember the Duchess of Windsor famously said you can never be too rich or too thin. So it was basically a license for people who were in that class position who wanted to stay permanently young looking, also wanted to stay permanently skinny. And it's the influence of that particular class position and the way that it's glamorized through like the Condé Nast publications and all of that, that sets the pattern that prevents the switchback against tuberculosis from being, oh, some sort of healthy body. Um, That's why that doesn't happen, I believe. It's that that strong an influence. Um, that is connected with a longer project that I'm also doing that involves spending a huge amount of time thinking about the 20s. And it's the culturally the crucial decade in certainly U.S. society where a lot of things that are still set today really kind of coalesce. This is part of that story, in fact. So tuberculosis, to sum up, it makes you oversexed. It makes you skinny, attenuated, pale and flushed with shiny eyes. You look like you're in the middle of this intense erotic fever that is also because you're so ethereal and sort of wasting away a kind of spirituality. Remember, this is the century when sex and death are essentially the same thing. When the whole argument of Tristan and Isolde is that the best orgasm is the one that kills you. Um, I mean, that's the end of the the opera after all. And so it's so important in the period that in 19th century Italian, the term tipo traviata means a woman who is beautiful in exactly this pale wasted away sort of fashion in, in fact. And as I say, it was an incredibly frequent cause of death in the middle of the 19th century. All of this started to shift in 1882. Uh, when the biologist Koch gave a lecture in which he clearly identified a bacterium as the cause of syphilis, of syphilis, sorry, of tuberculosis. Now, this is a period when there's still a huge amount of controversy about this. Eventually, when we're dealing with cholera, somebody's going to take the, the action of drinking a, a copy, a, a, a little vial of water to prove that, that transmits cholera. So it's uncertain, but as soon as it's identified, the notion of contagion becomes newly important. You start to see a lot of the explicit ideas about spirituality and over sexiness fading away. But the image doesn't change. The image of this kind of look as the perfect look for an ideal woman, boy, does that stay around. Arguably, it goes into the 20th century when you have all these models who look like they're a tic-tac away from death, you know? It's like, can't you eat a calorie at least? But that extreme thinness is probably associated with trying to make the best of something you had to live with, because there was no cure for it at that point. It does, however, change. If we think about Violetta Valérie in Verdi's uh, opera, you don't have to stay away from her. If you think about Mimi just a little while later, the way that tuberculosis is being treated is a little bit different. You know, you're handling it in a slightly different way, and it seems to mean differently. So this is This is a a sort of short discussion about how tuberculosis became the romantic disease because it touches so closely on so many of the aesthetic values that were being developed already in the 18, of the 1780s. Um, This sort of notion of transcendentalism, this sort of, it's essentially a kind of secularizing of a set of religious impulses, very much along the lines of the philosophical idea of the sublime is that thing which is more than you can comprehend, which you can sort of dimly touch, but it blows your mind. And that kind of amazing experience of not being able to think is the equivalent of Moses looking at Yahweh on the mountain. And that's part of why it's so valuable. Uh, The 19th century is the century when you have something we can reasonably call the religion of art. One of its high temples is Bayreuth, which was the second largest pilgrimage site in 19th century Europe after Lourdes. Um, It has high priests of various sorts. It has theologians. Arthur Schopenhauer in The World as Will and Representation gives you a way to think about art as a kind of sacred enterprise. And tubercular figures figured in with that very, very easily. And those were some of the things at play in the complex history of adaptation that gets us from the novel, La Dame aux Camélias to, uh, the, to the opera, La Traviata. I don't know how much you heard about this backstory. You're going to hear a fair amount from Holly in a little bit, but let me just give you a few high points. The novel, The Lady of the Camellias, was published by Alexandre Dumas Fils in 1848. It was based on a real person. Rose Alphonsine Plessis, was her original name, who went to Paris and very quickly became Marie Duplessis, who was a very serious courtesan who was connected with a lot of very important people. When the young Dumas met her, fell madly in love, and of course did not succeed very well in his courtship. Uh, His novel came out in 48, but more important was the play he derived from it in 1852, where he names her Marguerite Gautier. The play, by the way, was censored because the censors thought that it was horrifyingly indecent to be showing a contemporary character in this kind of situation. It was much too close to contemporary reality for them to be comfortable. This is the same sort of principle that the censors use on Verity when they say, well, yeah, I know this is about the assassination uh, of this kind of character, but you need to put it in Boston. You need to put it in Sweden. We can't have it too close to Italy. Um, You have to change this so that it's not really a king, make it a duke. You have to change these things because they're politically delicate for us in our current political situation. That was also true of plays about sex. And uh, the play that Dumas derived had this kind of problem. It's noteworthy this was a problem for the opera as well. The censors were exceedingly nervous about a topic that was historically so close to the present, in fact. Um, Now, you know the story, and you may have known other treatments of it, because despite the censorship, maybe because of the censorship, this was a really popular work. Anybody ever seen Greta Garbo in Camille? Because, you know, that's really, for us, maybe one of the classic moments of this. That's the source that Verdi was using. Let me add one more thing about post-Koch stuff. Um, The discovery of the tuberculosis bacterium also had amazing and odd results in fashion. Um, There used to be empires, are they empire skirts? The ones that trail, they have a train. Uh, Skirts got shorter because the idea was, oh my God, if there are germs, then there are disease vectors. Oh my God, these skirts, who knows what they're bringing in from outside? Lift those hemlines, ladies. Suddenly shoes become much more important because you can see them. Uh, Suddenly you see corsets being a little bit less restrictive and a little bit less common because the thought is, well, it's a disease of the lungs. How can we actually lace up these lungs and expect them to be healthy? And it is devastating to men's facial hair because it's like that recent report, God, men's beards have more bacteria than dogs do. Um, It's that idea. Oh, well, it's obviously so unsanitary. So all those patriarchal beards from the late 19th century. And weirdly enough, one of the reasons beards were apparently so popular in the US is because razors were extremely dangerous and infectious. And if you shaved, you'd probably get infected. That is actually how Alexander Scriabin died. He was shaving, he cut his lip, he got blood poisoning, and he died. One course of antibiotics would have solved everything, but no. Shaving was a hazard, in fact. So we see this registered over and over again in La Traviata. For once, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time talking about the other social issues, because I know that Holly is going to be talking about the place of gender, bourgeois respectability, and the whole question then. It's, of course, you know Verdi spent about 20 years of his life living with a woman with whom he was not married to the scandal of the neighbors, and it's reasonable to believe his sympathies were entirely on Violetta's side, in fact. That's one of the things I admire about the opera, actually. It's yes, she dies, but she's not treated badly as she dies. I mean, she's treated badly by the characters, but you're supposed to say, that's horrible after all. There are two things that I want to talk about and only one that I want us to listen to, but I'd like us to hear all of it, which is I'm trying to be brief. I want to talk for a minute first about the structure of Act 1 so that I can get us to the example I want us to hear. So famously, Verdi starts the opera with this beautiful soft passage of strings very high up that is important there as much for the fact that it's gonna come back as anything else. It does set the initial tone of however happy you think this is gonna be, it's not gonna turn out so well. There is sadness at the beginning. And then we launch into the beautiful set of dances that are gonna really characterize so much of this score. This score is like so many very operas about dance rhythms, but it's even more foregrounded in La Traviata than it is in a lot of other pieces. Waltzes are everywhere. Uh, Lots and lots of beautiful triple time things, lots of dances, lots of really gracefully integrated physical motion is placed in the score for us, which is all the more interesting because one of the side effects of tuberculosis was also immobility. Your joints were swollen and they hurt and you were starving. So usually if you were really seriously advanced in the disease, you had to lie down all the time. That's all you could do. And so I think there's a potential contrast there with poor Violetta not being able to do much and the music begging her to constantly. Because, of course, that's actually a lot of what the first act is about. People are beseeching her for things, and she's trying to live up to it even though she really can't. She's throwing a party to celebrate recovering from a really serious bout, but she's not recovered. She knows she's not recovered. The opera lets us see her looking in the mirror and thinking about how unrecovered she really is. So the whole first act has this sort of really, very sort of compelling irony about it, of someone who's forcing themselves to be happy. They're forcing themselves into this position of joy and artificial gaiety, et cetera. But all the while we know that Alfredo is actually right. It's killing her in this way. So we get a lot of set pieces. Of course, this is a thing that Verdi liked to do because especially Italian opera thrives on genre pieces. You want a Brindisi. Of course you want a Brindisi. You want oaths. You want prayers. You want these kinds of formal structures. And one of the great things about La Traviata is that this shows you how good Verdi was at taking traditional formal expectations and reaccentuating them so that they actually match the dramatic movement. Let's take, for instance, the end of of act one, uh, the best part. So as you'll recall, we've gotten into dinner, and she has a little moment, and she has a little sort of teasing uh, interaction with Alfredo during the banquet with the Brindisi. And then finally, he gets her alone and he makes his pitch for her. That, you know, if you were with me, I would take care of you, I would let you rest, I would sort of help you over all of this. I think left unsaid is the implication, you would only have to have sex with me, you wouldn't have to have all these other boyfriends, and that would let you rest too. Because remember, it's sexual excess which contributes to the disease. She doesn't want to buy it. We've got that beautiful contrast between his aria, um, Di Quel Amor, and her responses, which are very deliberately flippant. They're very short. Notice also that their shortness means that someone who has breathing problems can catch a breath a lot. In fact, the short-breathedness of a lot of her parts, I think, is a deliberate allusion to the physical difficulties that she's in. She has space. She has space and she needs the space. It's always going to be that kind of short thing when she's feeling it the most. She ends, of course, with what uh, would in traditional Italian terms be the cavatina cavalletta thing. You have a slower, more reflective section, then something happens, you change your mind and you have a fiery fast thing to get you off the stage. This is because, in part, for Verdi, it was as much about tempo and rhythm in different sections as it was about thematic recurrence. In a lot of ways, Italian opera is about tempo and and meter. It's about structuring the time in this way. That's also why dance rhythms matter a lot, because you can measure them more easily. Compare it to any Wagnerian opera where you don't know what time it is because you don't have any beat. Everything is deliberately floating in this kind of interior space where people are screaming about dying for two and a half hours, you know, because it's all about interiority. There's no bodies left in there. In verity, there are always human-sized bodies that can move in this way. And so we can pay attention to Violetta's rhythm to notice how she's hampered in these ways, where she's in effect slightly disabled. And part of the glory of the part is how you're managing to show, yes, I'm disabled, but I'm carrying on. It's in a weird way the sort of thing that you can imagine when you're listening to somebody like late Billie Holiday or Janis Joplin. Man, there are holes in the voice, oh my god, it's a wreck. And yet, you can see them navigate around it in these ways. And that's where some of the sort of excitement comes from that. I think that's built into the part here uh, in in, uh, La Traviata. But I want to turn, because I have a fairly long section here, to the beginning of Act 4. Act two, of course, is where they're in the country and uh, Alfredo's daddy comes in to do his terrible, terrible thing. Well, he's not gonna marry you, you're just a whore. That kind of stuff. My daughter's a good girl. She deserves happiness, unlike you. Um, all of that horrible, horrible stuff. But of course, just let me point out, one of the things that she's pleading with him about is that she doesn't have much time. She effectively says, I'm not gonna be here that long. You know, Can't I have this little bit of time anyway? She's very aware of her mortality still. Then the appalling act three where Alfredo behaves in such an absolutely abominable way to her. So we have these sort of terrible sort of moments for her. And then we find her at her sort of crucial moment, the beginning of act uh, four. Now, this is a thing, if I could play you multiple versions of the letter, I would really, really do it because the letter scene at the beginning of the act is a really, really amazing and important thing. First consider that she's not singing. She reads the letter. She usually traditionally read the letter in a very highly inflected kind of actor's style from the turn of the century, where there's lots of melody. It's the kind of thing in the movies, you saw it last longest in a few English actors. Like if you think of the musical voice of Sir John Gielgud. That kind of very, very musicalized sort of way of speaking. That was actually standard acting practice in the late 19th century. Um, uh, Actors could speak on pitches. You know, this is closely related to the origins of Sprechstimme. If you read memoirs, for instance, um, I once spent a lot of time with the memoirs of a woman named Julia Marlowe who was an anglo-american actress who was hugely successful in the 1880s and 90s and she had this whole sort of discussion of how she was trained and one of the things included going to her voice teacher's uh studio every day and reciting texts on pitches for two octaves so that she could learn to speak but in a frequency it's a really hard art to do but you can hear it you can actually hear recordings I heard her on a on an ancient recording doing the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet and when she says Romeo it's like a spoken version of Romeo I really you can hear it That's what the letter is supposed to be it's this it's melodrama first of all, which is the term we use for speech over melody uh, over music but it's a particular kind of melodrama from the beginning it was, almost music. Now this is possibly another way of signifying the tuberculosis at at effect. She can't sing suddenly. But it's also a way of acknowledging that this is not the same kind of text as the other ones. This is not her speaking. This is her speaking the words of someone else. So she's reading the letter. Now what happens when the letter is being read is you're hearing thematic reminiscence. At the beginning of the act, you heard the opening of the overture again. But at this point, what you're hearing is a musical version of Alfredo's first really serious aria, Di Quel Amor. So she's hearing it, and it's only at the moment that she exclaims, it's too late, è tardi, and you get this big dissonant chord that she's able now to launch into singing. She does her really famous slow unbearably sad ar- aria Adio del Passato and you'll notice there that short phrases short phrases hard to breathe, hard to breathe, that the breath is sort of taking taking her song away in this way. Um, I'd like us to listen to, it's about a seven and a half minute clip actually, but you can really focus on the ways that this kind of symptomology, this sort of loss of breath, this sort of loss of energy, and this sort of desire to push on no matter what, a kind of vocal heroism is being framed in the terms of the music and the performance. The performance I've picked is, um, Edita Gruberova. Again, I chose YouTube for the sake of access. You can all find this easily. This is the one I chose because when you're looking for this particular passage, there are a million wonderful performances. Very few of them are visually recorded as well, because this was a great set piece for a lot of ancient dead sopranos. My personal favorite being the truly great Italian soprano, Claudia Muzio, who recorded, I think, in the 30s. There are wonderful performances. This is the one I could find that was both staged and actually subtitled, because I thought that would be a little helpful. So let's actually watch this clip. There's Alfredo's aria. This won't be as highly pitched as the older ones would be.
1: La, La disfida ebbe luogo. Il barone si ferito, pero migliora. Alfredo in strano suono. Il vostro sacrifizio, io stesso gli ho e Egli a voi tornerà il suo perdono. Io pur verrò cullar te
0: m'è un avvenire io
1: io
0: germo e sto date- Yeah, it's a great, great, great number. It's a good performance. It does something that I find very interesting, and I wanna talk about this for a second. Gruberova clearly wants to make sure that you understand how good her legato is, and how good her pianissimo is. So she doesn't necessarily breathe all that much. But if you listen, the structure of the melody is such that you could actually breathe after every single phrase. And I've actually heard a rather unconventional soprano do a, a, this on a recital, where every time she sang, she would have to gasp over and over again. And it's not pretty in the same way, but oh my God, it was kind of horrifying. It's really there's a lot. Of dramatic potential for that in there. But even if she's not doing that, when she breathes, you notice. It's really apparent what's going on. Um, also, in connection with this, I would uh, say that personally speaking, my favorite recording of this piece is the one with Montserrat Caballé and Nicolai Guetta, because Caballé had an amazing pianissimo. She was famous for it, and it's just beautiful. And this is an opera where those pianissimi matter be, to be able to have just a barely thin sound that you're holding on to is a perfect thing to characterize Violetta because she's holding on as best she can. Now, as far as visual versions, of course, you can find staged versions, but there is also the hugely famous Zeffirelli film with Teresa Stratus and Placido Domingo in it, in fact. Um, It's really, really good in most respects. Stratus looks amazing because, of course, she was always a tic-tac away from death. So she's pale. She's really skinny. uh, She looks the part spectacularly well. Uh, And, of course, Maestro Domingo does a wonderful job. My only objection to it comes at the end. Has anybody ever seen this film? It's beautiful, as a Zeffirelli film typically is, but he does a mean and unnecessary thing at the end. So in Act 4, Alfredo comes back. He comes back just long enough for her to do something I admire greatly. Um, I like the viciousness of, take this picture of me. When you find someone to love, and you will, show her this and tell her I'm praying for you both in heaven. Take that knife, stick it in, and twist it, honey. Yes, yes, he was a heel and he deserves to suffer. so I've always been impressed by that. Um, but in Zeffirelli's film, as at the end of course, this is part of the mythology of tuberculosis, she suddenly feels like she's getting better. She's like, oh, I think I'm gonna be all right. I get up and then she collapses. Okay, that's already tragic enough, but I'm gonna spoil this for y'all. I hope you don't care. I think spoiling worries are stupid anyway. Um, Zeffirelli has her collapse and it turns out the house is empty. She's hallucinated his return entirely. And that's just one step too mean for me, you know? It's, in a way, it kind of ruins the whole film because it's like, oh, this is beautiful. This is passionate. Why did you do that to me? It would have been enough to have her die. I'm already upset. Um, I think he couldn't resist, because, well, you know, he's always got a little bit of the vulgar shock shock jock in him, after all. Um, but it is a thing that can be a good resource for y'all. It looks beautiful. It's not staged, it's done in a sort of hyper-realistic manner the way the Carmen with Julie McCainus Johnson and Domingo was. Um, and it looks sumptuous and beautiful. So that would be another recommendation I would make for that. To conclude a little bit here, We don't often enough study the real conditions of an opera's production and reception as much as we should, until probably, I'm going to say until around 2000, no one would have talked much about tuberculosis except in very loose forms. This started to change with the, the advent of a very interesting book that I want to recommend to you by a couple named Linda and Michael Hutchin. The book is called Opera, Disease, Desire, Death. She happens to be an extremely important literary critic. He happens to be a medical doctor. They were both passionate opera lovers, and they decided to collaborate on a book looking at medical symptomology as it appears in especially 19th and 20th century opera. So there is a really interesting chapter about tuberculosis that focuses on tales of Hoffman, uh, La Traviata, and La Boheme. There is a spectacular chapter that I was quoting from on Parsifal and syphilis that will end with a coda on Lulu and syphilis. There's a chapter on Carmen and smoking, and there are a number of really interesting things. And this book has been at the forefront of starting to pay attention to that kind of physicality in music making. A later book they did is on the notion of late style, which is what they're interested in is what happens to the way composers write when they're old and getting feeble. Um, They're having deafness or they're having heart trouble like Mahler or Britton, or they're sort of having really serious disabilities in late life that often has a direct impact on their musical style. Not really on Verdi, he was pretty good to go till he went, Um, but for a lot of other composers this kind of question of just the physical ability to do things turns out to matter hugely. And I think that that's also significant because one of the most recent things in musicology to become important is people are now interested in the question of what exactly is the relationship of disability to musical listening, performance, composition. It's become a really significant thing. There's more than one deaf composer after all, and there are a lot of issues that are now letting us think about the way music and bodies relate that we would not have had access to before. Okay. I know I am out of time. Thank you all you've been listening to la operas behind the curtain thanks and see you at the opera
1: if you've enjoyed listening to la operas behind the curtain you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.